You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Our guest today is fascinating, and the subject is fascinating. I'm talking about Mike Pfeiffer. He is the archivist uh, for the Rod Serling Archive at the Bundy Museum of History and Art. Now, uh, this particular museum, the Bundy Museum, happens to be in Rod Serling's hometown, Binghamton, New York. And the thing is, is that anybody who's listened to the programs knows I'm a huge Rod Serling fan. I think the man was a genius and one only wonders what he would have done had he uh, not passed at such a young age. In fact, it's really eerie for me because he passed on June 28th, 1975, I believe. That would have been my sixth birthday. Um, so it's just a kind of odd coincidence that totally disconnected to that. I become a huge fan and we're so glad to have Michael Pfeiffer again. He's the archivist for the Rod Serling archive at the Bundy museum. Mike, welcome to the program today. Yes. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. Now, um, I, I think we're probably a little different in age. Maybe you're a little older than I am. And, uh, I got into it and into Rod Serling by watching the twilight zone, uh, in rerun syndication. And I'm like, wow, this guy. And then I learned more about his background as a, as a writer and the other things that he did, which I think are underappreciated many times. How did you get into the work of Rod Serling? Well, I started watching them when I was seven years old, when they premiered in 1959, my parents actually let me sit up and watch these things. And, and uh, one of them scared me so bad I can't watch it to this day. So I was a fan right from from, from the very first premiere in 1959. Uh, then yeah, I had the privilege of meeting Rod Serling twice in 1971. I was going to uh, Binghamton's Broom Community Technical College, and Rod came there to uh, do a speaking engagement in the cafeteria. Uh, but this was early in the morning. It was like 6.30, and I'm sitting on the library steps waiting for the doors to open in the library. And up walks Rod. And he passed right by, didn't even notice right away. And uh, he tries the door, and on his way down, he says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't notice you. I said, they don't open the doors for another 20, 30 minutes. He stood there and talked to me one-on-one -on -one until the library opened. Uh, so we had a unique experience of, of talking. He had his traditional uh, suit and dark suit and tie on. He had the same uh, pose that he always did with his hands clasped. He had his cigarettes, of course. Uh, was very personable. He loved recognition. He loved autographing, taking pictures. And uh, so, although I don't remember the specifics of what we talked about, it had to be Twilight Zone and Night Gallery, which was then on the air. Mm -hmm. uh, I also met him for five minutes later, the same year, as uh, he came back for another speaking engagement. He came to Binghamton very frequently. So that's really what got me going in 1971. I decided, hey, there's more to this man than just the Twilight Zone and the Night Gallery. So I started researching for old TV guides, magazine articles, books, anything I could find in Rod Serling. But what really got me going was I was a film collector of 16 millimeter sound films, but I specialized in vintage television shows. Uh -huh. And so I stumbled on the Loner series, which is Rod's series right after the Twilight Zone went off the air. Uh, very, not many people know of the show. It only ran for 26 weeks out of 39 that it was supposed to run. Uh, Civil War Western with Lloyd Bridges. Uh, it's an amazing piece. Some of the best scripts he ever wrote are in that series. So I stumbled on some of those in a film package, a lot of Twilight Zones, uh, 16 millimeter print, 
And I was also collecting and uh, buying and selling original movie posters. So I was buying posters for Patterns and Requiem for Heavyweight and uh, Seven Days of May and wonder what all of these things were about. So I went looking for specific items and found many of them. So I go all the way back to about 1974, uh, collecting the films and the posters uh, at various conventions around the country. I, I want to talk about his early career before The Twilight Zone, because I think the vast majority of people who are familiar with Rod Serling via The Twilight Zone have no idea whatsoever that he was a very important television writer before that, that show was even conceived. But I, I want to go back a little further first. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Rod Serling's childhood and then also uh, through his later years as he grew up and was a veteran and so forth. And I think that informed a lot of his later work. Kind of give us a, a bit of background on Rod Serling in the early days. Okay, let me start with a famous quote of Rod. Uh, you hear the one line over and over, everybody has to have a hometown big in his mind. But let me read the, the rest of the paragraph. It gives some insight into Rod. It says, in the strangely brittle, terribly sensitive makeup of the human being, there is a need for a place to hang a hat or a kind of a geographical womb to crawl back into, or maybe it's just a place that's familiar because that's where you grew up. When I dig back through memory cells, I get one particularly distinctive feeling, and that's one of warmth, comfort, and well-being. For whatever else I may have had or lost or will find, I've still got a hometown. This, nobody's going to take away from me. So it gives some insight as to how, how precious his hometown memories were. Uh, Rod growing up in Binghamton, the family moved here from Syracuse, uh, New York, in 1926. Uh, Rod was just a little over a year old. Uh, Rod's mother's family had a grocery store chain, Cooper's grocery store chain, in Auburn and Syracuse, New York. And they sent Sam Serling and Esther, Rod's parents, down to the Binghamton area from 1919 through 1925 to case out locations for stores in this area. So right after Rod was born, Christmas Day of 1924, uh, Sam Serling took off shortly after, came to Binghamton, got an apartment, opened up the first store on our court street, and within a few months changed the name from Cooper's to Serling's Meat Market. And uh, we have some full-page ads in newspapers, uh, you know, showing the, the market here. So if it wasn't for the family grocery chain, the Serling family would not have moved to the Bennington area. So we're so thankful he did because without Helen Foley, his, his major teacher and mentor that really pushed him into uh, creative writing, public speaking, the debate club, and uh, theater, uh, he may not have become the writer that we know him to be today. Rod was really outgoing. We have some pictures, wonderful pictures, of Rod growing up in Binghamton, and on his eighth birthday, his father gave him basically a motorcycle. It was a bicycle with a motor on it, and Rod would do deliveries for the meat market, uh, you know, after school hours, and give big tips, according to his brother Robert, uh, seven years older, uh, because of his personality, his warmth, and his smile, and so, you know, even Depression era, and when money was tight, Rod was raking in some pretty good tips, I'm told. So, you know, we have a lot of pictures of Rod, uh, you know, uh, it's debate club, uh, different activities, uh, you know, sports, things throughout uh, his life here in Binghamton. And, uh, you know, even after the war, uh, he wasn't planning to come back. His father had, had dropped dead of a heart attack. 
I think Rod was devastated, uh, very close to not get back to the funeral. And uh, he wasn't going to come back here because his mom had moved back. But uh, it's an acute story that I, I just talked to a gentleman that's 89 years old that was in, in Rod's classes. Mm-hmm. And he says, we were in New York City to have a surgery. And mom and I were on a bus and we looked and there's Rod with his uniform on, his duffel bag. And we hurried off the bus and said, Rod, where are you going? You obviously just got discharged. He said, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm going to do. So they invited him back here to Binghamton to live with them. And he was here for two months, and he worked at a local radio station, WINR. What's interesting to us about that is he was an announcer for the two months, but Rod was fired because he had such a terrible, speaking voice. Uh, (laughs) How ironic is that? Yeah, it's amazing. And we have that imprint, and I'm sure that manager has turned over in his grave a thousand times by now. So, you know, Rod was here for the two months. When he was fired, he moved up. Uh, to Schenectady to live with an aunt for a few months, and then he went to uh, Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, under the GI Bill. So, you know, a- even after he became famous, uh, he would come to Binghamton when, you know, they lived outside of Ithaca, New York, in Interlaken, at the, uh, his wife's family. Uh, it was a cottage. They built it up into a really nice home. And uh, he would drive by, uh, Anne Sterling tells in her wonderful book about her dad, uh, that, you know, he would often just hop in the car and say, well, I'm off to Binghamton. And he would just drive around. He didn't want anybody with him. He'd pass by the old houses and the old uh, meat markets and, and uh, the synagogue and anything that was important to him in his life. And then, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you know, the last seven or eight years when he was teaching at Ithaca College before he passed away, he would come to Binghamton, as I mentioned many times, to to do a program. As a matter of fact, anybody from Binghamton that he really knew and cared about, if they called him and said, Rod, we need you to come and speak for this or, uh, event or another, he, he was always here. And uh, always at his own expense, he was just really willing to come back home and, and participate uh, in the local hometown events. It seems to me that there's a there's a line of sentimentality that runs through his work. You remember the one Twilight Zone I can't remember the exact title, but the one surrounding the town called Willoughby. Uh, and, uh, and, and there is a lot of uh, sentimentality in his work, I think, at times. Yeah, that's a stop at Willoughby. And it is considered yeah, a home, hometown type of an episode, although Willoughby, Ohio, claims the same to that. And yeah, which is about, uh, you, know, you know, right in my area, I'm out of Cleveland, so it makes me laugh oh. every time I hear that. <laughs> yeah, and of course, they had nothing to do with Willoughby, Ohio, but, uh, you know, Ann Sterling goes out and does the parades every year, and so they've really claimed that. But it's an interesting episode, and uh, the major hometown theme episode everyone's familiar with is Walking Distance uh, with the carousel at our recreation park. And I said, you know, that really hits home. Uh, recreation Park and that carousel was seven blocks from Rod's house. Uh, he would go there and play tennis all the time and swim and, and uh, ride the carousel and so, although the episode was not filmed here, uh, you know, the whole story is about the park and, and his relationships here in town. And, uh, he, you know, he did a lot of other episodes that had local themes for us. The After Hours with the Mannequins with Dan Francis was based after a department store here that he uh, sold toys. One of his first jobs as a teenager was selling toys in this big department store. And he seemed to love mannequins because he wrote many episodes in the different series and even uh, early television uh, about mannequins. Um, the bus station episode, uh, Mirror Image with Vera Miles and Martin Miller, who just passed away last month, is, is 
not the Binghamton bus station, uh, but the main character says I'm from Binghamton three times, and, and they go on to mention the bus route from here to Portland to Tully to Syracuse to Buffalo. So, you know, it, it's a major episode. As a matter of fact, CBS sent out a publicity photo for every episode uh, trying to get the, you know, articles in, news, in the newspapers and TV guides. And there was a publicity photo of Rod Serling standing in front of our bus station with one foot stepped up onto the first step of the bus uh, promoting, you know, the episode. So I found it clever that they, you know, actually tied in Rod right with our station. And uh, so, you know, even night galleries, I think, did the same. Uh, the tearing down Tim Riley's bar had critical acclaim. was a, a local theme episode. And, uh, you know, like Hitchcock putting himself in so many, well, every one of his films for at least 10, 15 seconds, Brad did the same thing as a writer. He would put in his wife Carol's name, his daughter's Anne and Jody, uh, names were used over and over throughout the Twilight Zones and other works. Uh, one of his best friends, Jack Levine, who became a doctor, uh, that's who actually came back and lived with after the war. Uh, he put him in the Night Gallery uh, episode with Edward G. Robinson, uh, Christmas Story, and so, you know, he immortalized a lot of his friends, the McNulty sisters, which I knew very well myself, uh, were immortalized in some of his episodes. So a lot of writers do that. Now, um, when he went came on the scene in the 50s as a writer in television, it was prior to the Twilight Zone. And um, a lot of people, I think, don't know this, but he was a central figure in the live television scene of that time, you think like programs like Playhouse 90 and so forth, and very, very highly acclaimed, award-winning and so forth. And this was done, you know, before anybody heard of anything about The Twilight Zone. Uh, yes, Rod Serling sold his first two scripts to television in 1950. There was a series called uh, uh, Stars Over Hollywood. And the first one aired was uh, uh, Brady Everett for the People, a very uh, tense political thriller where the politician ends up shooting and killing somebody in it. Uh, the, the latter one was a great Christmas show called Christmas for Sweeney, and uh, that aired in 1950 also. So the first, uh, you know, when Rod graduated in 1950 from Antioch, he was working at WLW Radio and, and Television in Cincinnati, and uh, he was writing terrible material because they assigned him like a hillbilly singer in, in a bar situation, and and jingles and and uh, really bizarre children's programs. Uh, a matter of fact, Steven Spielberg grew up at that time in in Cincinnati and probably heard some of Rod's children's programs. Uh, you know, we haven't confirmed that, but it makes sense if you listen to any radio or anything as a child that uh, you know Rod's programs were on the air. We actually just got in three strips from 1950 radio strips in WLW. So he decided, of course, he wanted to write something important uh, and go more into the television than the radio genre. And uh, the first 30 stri 40 strips that he submitted uh, were all rejected. That had to be a major blow because 40 is a lot of writing. And to be rejected, <laughs> excuse me, to be rejected 40 times had to really be disheartening. Uh, but he hit Pater with patterns, craft uh, theater in 1955, and it won his first Emmy. You know, Rod mentioned in interviews and uh, speeches that, you know, he never thought it was any better than some of the other 40 that he had written and submitted. But for whatever reason, it hit critical acclaim. Uh, and it's the only television show that was done live that was repeated live three weeks later. 
there was such an acclaim to see it rebroadcast. Uh, they had to wait three weeks until the cast was free from other work they were doing, and they actually repeated it live for a second time. And, uh, you know, after that, he said the phones, you know, before then, the phones never rang, and after patterns, the phone never stopped ringing for the rest of his life. <laughs> uh, the very next year, he followed up with another Emmy for Requiem for a Heavyweight for Playhouse 90 with Jack Talents as the boxer. And, uh, you know, that was written specifically for Playhouse 90. Uh, they asked him to, you know, write something. Matter of fact, they wanted it to be the first entry. And then uh, the uppity ups at CBS said, well, women are going to like a story about boxing. You don't want to use this. And so they quickly hired him to adapt the story, the forbidden area uh, with uh, Carlton Heston. And it's a great war piece. And uh, so that actually aired first. And then they finally had consent and, and aired Requiem. And, of course, the critical acclaim from Requiem. Uh, matter of fact, William Paley from CBS called uh, the directors of the show and the producers right after he hung up. And he never had did this before or after and said that this television show, Requiem for Heavyweight, just propelled television 10 years ahead. He said this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen. And uh, so Rod won his second Emmy. So what we call the golden age of television from 1950 to basically early 60s, uh, Rod had written over 90 strips that were produced uh, in those years. He actually wrote about 200, if you count all the ones that were not produced at that time. So Rod was very smart. He would recycle you know, after patterns and requiem, a lot of the 40 that had been rejected. And most of those were then produced because of the fame that he had received. That's funny. Now, was the Twilight Zone partially in reaction to the idea that live programs like Playhouse 90, these long form in many ways kind of plays for the teleplays, and they use that phrase, teleplays, were kind of going away in favor of taped content. Was that part of the reason for the Twilight Zone? Uh, not really, actually. Most people felt that, uh, you know, Rod was giving up writing for the famous one hour and, and 90 minute uh, live shows. Uh, it, but if you go back and watch the uh, Mike Wallace interview show from about 1958, uh, he actually made the mistake of saying to Rod, why are you giving up writing serious dramas for television and going into the science fiction fantasy realm? And Rod was very put out over this and, he said, I'm not giving up anything. He said, I cannot stand fighting with the censors constantly. As a matter of fact, Rod Serling is known as the last angry man of television. And, uh, you know, the, the censorship was just abhorrent to Rod, and, and uh, we're so glad that he fought against it the way he did. So his point of view on that interview was, uh, if I'm doing a political uh, episode, and I, I'm told by the censors that I can't say this as a Republican or as a Democrat or, or whatever the case may be, or or an episode on bigger for your hatred or whatever. He said, I can put that in the science fiction realm, put it on another planet and have an alien say the same line and get my message out there. And they won't even pick up on it. And of course they didn't. So that was the main reason uh, that he had gone into the science fiction realm. However, back in 1953, he actually wrote a 90 minute show called the gift, which was later presented as the original pilot for the twilight zone. Not too many people know this. And uh, back in 53, it was rejected in part because it wasn't very good. But the main notes on there was, this is science fiction. We don't want anything science fiction. So he was interested. He had, he had grown up reading the popes and uh, uh, listening to the radio shows. And 
doing reenactments of those as a young child. He would have a stage in his basement, would put on plays and charge money <laughs> to perform. So, you know, he was interested in that all along. Uh, later on, the gift did end up a half-hour episode of the Twilight Zone series. But most people think that the uh, Desigu Playhouse time element with William Bendix about Pearl Harbor was actually the first pilot, but it, it really was not. It went back to 1953. Uh, it was recycled into the series later on. Now, uh, why do you think that Rod Serling has stood the test of time compared to um, other writers of the time? I'm thinking about somebody like uh, Patty Chayefsky, who wrote for television, highly acclaimed, award-winning, and so forth. People like that. Why has Rod Serling kind of been remembered and maybe some of those other people not remembered as much? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Patty Chayefsky because, you know, it, it, Rod always had the feeling of uh, not being as good as some of these others. But Rod Serling won six Emmys for dramatic writing and television, which has not been surpassed to this day and never will be based on the fact that then you had 39 episodes a year, uh, some cases more. Today you have maybe 12 episodes to a season with 12 different writers. So it's not likely that anybody will ever win that many uh, dramatic writings. But he was very critical of his own work. Uh, he loved the works of Patty Chayefsky and uh, Reginald Rose. As a matter of fact, Reginald Rose and Rod did a pilot back in 1955 that was unaired, very controversial uh, about the McCarthy era. Uh, and it was on, would you sign a loyalty pledge uh, to, to your school uh, you know, to prove that you were not a communist? And so this thing was very heavy-handed and never was aired. But uh, most of those other writers, you know, that we just mentioned, Chayefsky and Reginald Rose, went on to, at least in Patty's case, doing major motion pictures, which Rod Serling himself, really in later life, after the uh, Twilight Zone and the Loners, wanted to go and become a major screenwriter. He did do 12 movies, but he never had the notoriety other than Planet of the Apes uh, in Seven Days in May as being really good work. So on to the Twilight Zone. Give us the, uh, I know we talked about the idea of cloaking some of those themes in science fiction so he wouldn't have the censors at his throat. Um, how was it accepted at its time? Because it was something totally different. Uh, the reviews were really good from uh, from the get-go with the, uh, the half-hour Where's Everybody pilot with Earl Holloman. Uh, and it seemed to have a pretty good share uh, in, in the ratings, reviews, for the first three seasons, and then actually the third season it was canceled, and then uh, Rod moved back to Antioch to do a teaching job, and then right after he got back there, they decided to hire him back into a fourth season with one-hour shows. But he was very limited because he had this teaching engagement. So, you know, they, they seem to have been extremely well-received to the, to the point that we're at where we are today, uh, that you can watch them like reading a good book, you can read it over and over again and get something new out of it and i feel that the twilight zones especially are the same way i mean i've seen some of these probably a hundred times now that they're on netflix and you have DVD box sets and i start at the beginning go through the 156 and start over and many times even after seeing them all these times i see something new uh, in the background or i hear a line that i didn't pay attention to before and it seems to be completely new to me and uh, so i'm sure a lot of the fans feel the same way uh I do. Course, yeah, 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 most people I talk to do. Even the younger generation, the college students today, when I talk to them about the Twilight Zone, they said, well, we like the newer color ones better. 
And that's fine, because a lot of people are just against black and white, but they grow off of it and don't realize how wonderful it is with the lighting and surrealism. But uh, they are familiar with the older ones, too, especially with Netflix and uh, YouTube and their availability so easy. But, uh, yeah, I found it interesting that the two newer series from 85 to 89, that early 90s, are only eight episodes of Rods that were actually redone. Uh, and I've only seen one, and it was it was okay, but it's just, even though it was Rod's script, it's still not the same as the original Twilight Zone. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be very hard for any kind of anthology series to beat that. I I think even, you know, Night Gallery, uh, when, in comparison... Uh, and it's my understanding he didn't have quite the creative control on that program that he did on the Twilight Zone, but uh, it's a it's a very interesting show, and I enjoy watching watching them. But it, but it's not I don't believe it's up to the standard of the Twilight Zone. No, it certainly isn't. Uh, when Night Gallery was aired, Rod first thought of it as Rod Sterling's Wax Museum, uh, Rod Sterling's House of Wax, and the idea was turned down. And then they did the pilot movie with Joan Crawford playing the role in Eyes, and it was the first major directorial uh, job for Steven Spielberg. And the movie had such critical acclaim, they said, okay, we'll do this as a series. But they made it pretty clear to Rod up front that, you know, we want your name, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. We do want you as the host. And yes, we want you to write some episodes. But uh, it only aired the three seasons, and it was a real love-hate relationship. I, basically, just a hate relationship with the producer, Jack Laird, very young producer. He you know, had complete control of the series, where Rod owned 50% of the Twilight Zone. He owned uh, Katie's Productions and his wife, Carol. And so, you know, he was a producer. He, he did a lot of the casting himself. Uh, he wrote 92 of 156. So he had a lot of control. But with Night Gallery, he ended up writing 39 out of the 99 episodes. Uh, the complete first season, I think, was only six weeks, and he ran, wrote the first five. And then he wrote 22 episodes of the second season. And then by the third season, uh, their relationship and strained so bad that Jack Laird says, Rod, don't even submit any more scripts. I'm not going to read them. We're not going to produce them. Uh, they really... <laughs> Rod said he never hated anybody, and then he corrected that. Well, yeah, there was one person, you know, and he would go into <laughs> the story. And... Uh, what I find interesting with the night galleries, because I did watch them when they were first on, is that even the ones that, like Twilight Zone, even the episodes that Rod did not write, they still did paid homage to Rod in the sense that they did the surprise with them for most of them. Uh, even coming down in the one-minute and two-minute comedy sketches that Jack Laird produced and starred in many of them, they still had this stupid uh, comedic twist ending to them. So I find them amusing. But uh, very little critical acclaim to them. Uh, Rod won two Emmys for the Twilight Zone series. Uh, and one was for Eyes of, Eye of the Beholder episode. And uh, so, although he was not nominated or anything, the two major episodes of Night Gallery, I had already mentioned the Edward G. Robinson, Messiah on Mott Street, and they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar, did have critical acclaim. They were both amazing pieces. So I'm not a fan of the more horror and occult uh, that Night Gallery went that route. But, uh, you know, some of the episodes are still very well done. Why do you think that Serling's work, and we haven't even mentioned Planet of the Apes <laughs> and the other things he's done. You talked about the one series, The Loner, which I've never gotten to see. Uh, but why do you think his work has stood the test of time? I mean, he'd certainly created a character 
you know, the guy in the suit smoking the cigarette in front of the night gallery. I gotta, I mean, in front of the Twilight Zone at the beginning. I mean, creating that character I know has a lot to do with it. Uh, but I also believe the quality of the work has a lot to do with it. Why do you think he stood the test of time? Uh, I, I think in particular with the, the, the golden age of television works, uh, some of those, if, if you would go back and watch a lot of them around YouTube, are just such brilliant performances, uh, so well written that they're, they're still applicable. The topics that he wrote on, uh, for example, the Emmett Till murder, the 14-year-old uh, a, a black boy that was murdered, uh, and the, the Holocaust uh, in the presence of mine enemies. Actually, that was an important piece in many ways. Uh, he wanted to write this on the Warsaw Ghetto, and Playhouse 90 several years earlier said, well, we like what you've done with this, but if we air this, we're going to be shut off the air, thrown off the air. So he says, what we're going to do is submit to buying the story. We will air it as the last Playhouse 90 ever, uh, knowing that in advance then the, you know, the hate letters that are going to come in will not hurt us. We're going to be off the air. And that's an important piece because it's Robert Redford's first acting job. Uh, you know, it says introducing Robert Redford. He played the young Nazi soldier who hated what he was being ordered to do, even though he really didn't do much bad in the show. Uh, he came to the rabbi, Charles Lawton, at the end and just was weeping on his lap and saying, forgive me, forgive me. And the rabbi forgives this young Nazi soldier for his part in what was going on in the Warsaw Ghetto. And they were right. Over, Rod received over 3,000 hate letters from important Jewish leaders around the world himself, and the network's many thousands more than that. And, uh, you know, it just really, really hit home. I mean, out of 500,000 people in that short period of time in the Warsaw Ghetto, less than 50 survived. I mean, it's just an amazing part of history. So these topics, you know, Rod felt were very important to him. He did similar episodes with the Twilight Zone. Uh, matter of fact, deaths had been visited uh, about Dachau and the, uh, the commanding officer that tortured and killed people. He comes back and they do a flip on that and the ghosts are there and they end up torturing and, and uh, you know, driving this man mentally crazy. So, you know, these were important pieces. And, you know, Rod and a lot of historians have said, if we don't keep watching these and reliving these things and say they didn't exist, then it's going to happen again. So... I think a lot of the important works hold up for that reason. With the Twilight Zone, the science fiction genre seems to be the, the biggest money-making genre out there in, in movies and television today. And uh, Rod was the start of it. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, when he got his star uh, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, said that I feel guilty accepting this if the first star for a major writer should be going to my friend Rod Serling. And we're very thankful for that remark. And a lot of the major Star Trek cast also started uh, either in live television or on the Twilight Zone series with Rod. A matter of fact, Gene Roddenberry did the eulogy at Rod's funeral. Now, so, the, yeah. and, and then yeah. you think about Twilight Zone and cast of Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy, and of course, uh, William Shatner on a couple of very famous episodes. Uh, yes, Leonard Nimoy did the, the uh, episode, Equality of Mercy, and we were so lucky in the at the archive at the Bundy Museum to recently purchase the World War II helmet that he wore in that episode. Uh, comes with the original set designer, Dale Henry Grace, was the lead set designer for all five seasons. So all of our props have come through. Uh, Henry Grace, who had sold these off at the big MGM prop auction in the late 70s. So that's a beautiful piece that we have. Uh, you mentioned the two with Shatner with the gremlins on the plane. 
uh, in the other one in this small town with the mystic seer uh, in the restaurant there. And uh, DeForest Kelly had tried to get into a series and was scheduled and then had to back out. But uh, Scotty, James Duhan, also did an episode. It was a small part. A quiet stopover. And then uh, the, the major uh, episode of Twilight Zone with a Star Trek cast with George Takei. And that's The Encounter. Yes. And The Encounter was such a bizarre episode because if you haven't bought the box set, uh, I'm not sure you've ever seen it. It aired one time, <laughs> excuse me, and uh, it was banned from television. The hate mail uh, from the civil liberties unions in the United States and the Japanese people over this episode was, was phenomenal. And uh, it basically, you know, George Chiquet played a gardener. Uh, he was hired to come upstairs to Neville Brands and attic and help clean it out. They find a war relic, a sword that uh, the American soldier had picked up during the war. And it turns out that George Takei's father was the gentleman that, that uh, led the planes into the bottom of Pearl Harbor. And they end up both getting killed. And it was just a very powerful episode. So, I mean, that whole episode with George Takei, where, you know, the Nimoy characters on stream, maybe three minutes. Uh, DeForest Kelly, maybe one minute. Uh, Shatner, of course, was on stream a lot, but. That one with George Takei is an amazing piece. If, the, if your viewers have not seen it, it is on the DVD box set. CBS vowed it would never be seen again, uh, but Rod Serling had his own 16-millimeter print with commercials in his collection at the Ithaca Archives here in New York, and I was privileged to work with Carol Serling uh, for several years back then, and uh, she gave me a copy of it, which I was allowed to screen for George to the Star Trek show back in the late 80s, and I have Carol Serling's letter and says, for God's sake, don't tell him where you got this. Nobody's supposed to have this. It's never supposed to be seen again. And, you know, you're looking back at it, it's, it's a really funny letter. But, uh, you know, I'm glad now that it's part of history. It's part of the Twilight Zone box set. And uh, it's a very important piece for your, for your uh, listeners to watch if they've not seen it. 50 years old. Rod Serling died at 50 years old. I mean, what were the circumstances around that? I mean, did he know he was ill? Was this something that came on all of a sudden? I know he had heart problems. Um, I mean, just well, sad. What happened? What brought it on was, you know, it's five to seven packs a day, cigarette smoking, his uh, coffee a uh, with You know, he, he said he worked seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day on the Twilight Zone series for the five years. So all of that took its toll. His father, some of it was probably genetics because his dad dropped that in to leave a heart attack uh, in about 1945. And uh, so, you know, Rod, you know, was wearing down a little bit because of his bigger schedule. But uh, what had happened was uh, a couple of heart problems uh, where he spent a few weeks in the hospital. And then, uh, you know, later on, an actual heart attack. And then the second heart attack uh, was interlaken. Uh, at their home, and uh, he had just spent a week or so in the hospital in Ithaca prior to this one, and they said, look, if something happens again, you're going to have to go to have uh, open-heart surgery. And uh, so they took Rod by ambulance from Ithaca area to Rochester, the Strong Memorial Hospital. And here's what Rod did. It, it's written in many articles in his daughter's book. He actually got the EMTs to stop the ambulance and let him get out and smoke on the way to the hospital for his open heart surgery. Oh, my. And I guess they smoked right along with him. How do you say no to Rod Serling? But they should have said no. But even worse than that, uh, when he went into open heart surgery, I actually spoke with the nurse that wheeled him into the OR 
and he had a cigarette in his room five minutes before he went into open heart surgery. Uh, so ten hours during the surgery, he had a massive heart attack, which took his life. Ah, oh. oh, sad. So you know, he sad. had he did not expect to pass away. Answering in her book, uh, again for your readers, it's called. Uh, you know, my dad, as I knew him, Rob Serling, it's a wonderful book. I've yeah, we actually book. actually had the chance to interview Anne. It was fantastic. Yeah, she's great. I've never met her. I'm, I'm hoping to sometime, but uh, I loved her book. And, and she mentioned, you know, she'd be crying and he's getting ready for surgery. She says, don't worry, honey, because I'm going to be okay. He had no premonition. And I'm glad of that because, you know, for people that, you know, live in fear of dying every minute of their life, or suspecting they're not going to come out of surgery. That's got to be a horrible feeling going into a surgery, uh, and certainly doesn't help help you survive that surgery. So, no. you know, I'm glad he didn't have any really inclination that you know I might not come out of this. What What was Serling planning to do had he lived? I mean, what were what was in the works? Um, I believe he was going to be affiliated with the In Search of series, if I remember correctly. I may be wrong, which eventually. No, Leonard you are correct. He actually, he actually did the narration for the first two In Search of. Yeah, I remember. And the then movie. he passed away, and so the job went on to Leonard Nimoy. They just released that box set a few months ago. So you know he would have continued doing that. Uh, most of his work in the last seven or eight years was narrative work. He did you know all of the UFO specials, the alien specials. Uh, seven or eight of these major ones that are out on DVD, but he was the narrator for. And he was always asked, do you believe in all of this? And he says, no, but I want to. But he says, there's, there's not enough proof for me to say, yes, I really believe in the aliens and uh, the UFOs and things. But uh, he, he, was, he wanted to be a major motion picture writer. And um, a friend of ours here at the, at the uh, Bundy Museum and the Archive has an amazing book coming out for Christmas called uh, Dimensions of Imagination, the complete Rod Serling companion. And uh, we've had Nick here speaking several times, and uh, the book is amazing. And he unearthed a script in 1974, uh, less than a year before Rod passed away, that was a theatrical version of the Billy Mummy episode, It's a Good Life, with little Anthony, wishing everybody into the yeah. cornfield. <laughs> One of the Rod, most chilling ones uh, ever. It is, but wait till you hear this. And I... I don't even want to know the ending. He was going to tell me, and I said, no, I'll, I'll see it in your book in a couple of months. Uh, he, he read the script. No other researcher has apparently found the script. I've never seen it mentioned anywhere. And here's the basic storyline. Uh, it starts with the day that Anthony is born, and that night he's one day old. He has a head of hair. He has a head of teeth. And he starts shaking his rattle and talking and saying, feed me, feed me. The next day, his uncle comes and realizes Anthony is demonic, so he kills his uncle. He causes him to fly off the building and to his death. Uh, before he's one year old, he cuts off the legs of a policeman he didn't like on the street. Rod was going into a very gory uh, genre at this point, and I, I really wish that the script had been produced because it could have given us a whole new side of Rod Serling. Another example is he's in church with his mother, and there's a heavyset lady organist, and he doesn't like the music. And he says to her, he, he creates a huge rat and puts it on top of the organ. He says, now you play the music I want, or my rat is going to eat you. Oh, <laughs> so, my. <laughs> I mean, it was, and, and Nick was telling me about this, and he said it's very, very gory, graphic, violent. I didn't know Rod Serling had that within him to write that way. 
he saw he said the first two thirds of the script is amazing, but he did not like the ending. So uh, you know, I, I like everyone else, I want to wait for the book to see how the script ends. But boy, it'd be wonderful if somebody would pick that up and still do it from Rod's original script. He could have gone into a whole new genre of writing, and I think that's what was really behind it, trying to propel him forward into a new new uh, career of writing for the motion pictures. You know, in the late 70s, he did The Man with James Earl Jones as the first black president. Mm-hmm. Uh, very rare film. We do have a, a perfect copy of it. It's an amazing piece. And uh, a few things that he had done uh, right before he passed came out. Uh, Deadly Fathoms came out the next year. And it says, with Rod Serling. Well, it's not with Rod Serling. It was Rod narrating it. But they were really cap- trying to capitalize even after Rod's death, but uh, he's in this thing when it was just a narrative, but very rare. I've never found a, a print of it to see anywhere. So, you know, he would have probably continued narrative, but, uh, you know, and maybe new series. A matter of fact, right now, there's something I have to mention. If anybody, uh, your listeners, uses the Internet Movie Database, if you type in Rod Serling under his filmography, it's a 2015 uh, The Hitchhiker series hmm. written by Rod Serling. Well, there was an episode of Twilight Zone called The Hitchhiker, so I'm unsure whether they're just uh, using that as a generic theme or whatever for the whole series, how you can make a series out of one episode, I don't know, but it lists Rod Serling as the writer for this new series. Also, right now, J.J. Uh, Abrams has been working on, for the last couple of years, uh, a five-part miniseries, The Stops Along the Way, which was the last completed strip Rod had written before he passed away. And something really amazing right now that I just found in the last month is there is a New Night Gallery miniseries in production right now as we speak with J. Michael Straczynski from Babylon 5. And uh, so we're so anxious to see what he's going to do with this. Uh, hopefully he will use some of Rod's original work in it. Uh, but from what I'm told in Babylon 5, which I'm not too familiar with, that it's an amazing series and, and uh, this could be quite a miniseries. Uh, so even after all of these years, Rod Serling's works are still being produced. Yeah, it is quite a legacy. And things that we didn't even touch on, he actually hosted a game show, The Liars Club, for a while, I think in the late 60s. Um, and, and you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about all his narration work and essentially being what we would call today in some ways a voice actor. You know, maybe that's why he was so good at at writing for actors and writing such great dialogue and such snappy dialogue is because he almost had an actor's sensibility because in these things that you did, you don't, you don't think there's acting in it, but certainly the way that he would deliver an intro to either a twilight zone or a night gallery, uh, uh, program or the way he would narrate one of these UFOs, uh, specials. There certainly was a certain, uh, flair for the dramatic in terms of being a voice actor. So I, I think that really transferred on the page. Yes, it did. Carol Serling was telling me personally years ago and in many interviews that when Rod Serling wrote a script, this is especially back in the early 50s, uh, in around 1952, he would not let her read it until it was finished. And then he would read it and he would play all the parts. So no matter what he wrote, she said that was his routine. Uh, she had to wait till it was done and that he would, he would act out all of the parts. Now, his teacher, Helen Foley, in junior high school, his English teacher, uh, he immortalized her in the episode of The Twilight Zone, Nightmare as a Child. And she was very close and was a mentor throughout his life. 
And she said, as a student, he was a terrible writer. <laughs> I found that amusing. And then she said, he was a ham actor. She said, I pushed him into the theater uh, clubs uh, and, and mostly into the debate clubs to, to hone in on his, on his voice. And uh, but she said he was so funny. He was always clowning around. He was always pranking. And as I mentioned earlier, he had a stage in his basement and would reenact a lot of these stories himself. And then later on, you know, getting some neighborhood kids in. But I found it interesting that, you know, to his wife, instead of just letting her read the script or him reading it, he would literally act out all of the parts. So he wanted to be an actor. He only had three chances to do that in his life. The first was the Jack Benny show. Uh, in the late 50s, uh, and that's on the box set, and it's also on YouTube, about a seven-minute sketch. But then in 1962, CBS did something interesting. They had a sitcom, uh, Ichabod and Me, with Robert Sterling as a young writer in a small town. And Rod Sterling, they brought in to do what we would call a crossover episode today, uh, playing a famous writer, the celebrity next door, it's called, who was hiding out to work on this new book. And Rod is on screen about 12 minutes, and it's some hysterical footage. It's really fun stuff. And, and we uh, are lucky enough, we just showed that at one of our uh, In the Zone programs at the museum in June on the day of his passing. And then the last thing he did as an actor was a Ironside program uh, with Jodie Foster, the 10-year-old witch. And Rod Serling played a warlock who was selling witches' potions in a store. Uh, very short scene, about two minutes. But, uh, you know, had he lived, I'm sure he would have had more opportunities to act. Uh, was he a good actor? <laughs> no, for these three examples. A matter of fact, when you go back to Playhouse 90 with a Requiem, uh, there was a major Desiree Playhouse called The Man in the Funny Suit that aired in 1960 about the making of Requiem for Heavyweight and how, most, how it almost never got to air because Edwin was always laughing from a member of line uh, in his first dramatic appearance. And Rod had a famous scene in there. He played himself. And he really hammed it up in this episode and, and saying something to the effect that, you know, do you know how much sweat and tears goes into writing something like this? It doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, and it ended up saying that if you're going to keep Edwin in this show, you're going to take my name off the credits. I don't even want to be known as the writer of this uh, nonsense the way it was coming out. It's a powerful <laughs> piece. Uh, I've watched it a hundred times. I've had it since the 70s. And it's, it's just an amazing piece. Matter of fact, they hired an understudy for live television for Edwin, and uh, you know he found out about it the night before the live airing, and and uh, it's an amazing piece. And that was on YouTube. I don't know if it still is, but it's well worth seeing if you can find it. So, you know, he played himself in that, and well, everybody did. Ed Keenan, Wynn, and Rod Sterling, and Red Skelton—they all played their own part in the making of Requiem and that episode. But uh, even in that, he really hammed it up to get his point across. Uh, I mentioned his teacher, Helen, had said that Rod was not a good writer as a student uh, in the second and third grade, but I'll give you an example of how creative a writer he was. A local restauranteur here in town told me about a year ago that uh, a good friend of his had just passed, and he was a student, a fellow student of Rod Serling, and they were given an assignment one day to write a complete story in 25 words or less. Mm -hmm. And the story goes that Rod was sitting in the window, and it's rainy out, and teacher came over and says, Rod, why aren't you writing? He says, I'm thinking. Where everybody else was, you know, uh, using the papers or notes for spitballs. They were frustrated. They couldn't get it done. But the end result was Rod wrote a complete story in nine words. And this is what he wrote. It says, triplets playing ball. It's gonna rain. 
everybody go home. So, you, <laughs> you know, whether the assignment was 25 words or less, Rod, in one sentence, you know, did it all in nine words. And I find that amazing. The triplets were our local Yankee farm team. Uh, everybody from the Baggio, they were, everybody played there at least once it was in the contract every year. And so Rod didn't have a lot of money to go to the game, so he and his friends would stand up back and catch the, the home run balls, and then everyone you got a free game. So he was very into it, but that's, that's what he wrote, triplets playing ball. And uh, really few example of, even as a young you know, teenager, uh, that he wasn't as bad a writer as, as Helen had mentioned to me. Also, it was just recently discovered that he, for four years, from the ages of about 11 to 15, was a writer for a local radio station, a student writer for WMBF here in town. So he couldn't have been too bad if he was had a paid position as a student writer for the radio station at that time. Now, um, here, here, here's the thing. I mean, everything he did, we didn't even get into, he did a old time radio revival series in the seventies, a zero hour. Um, there's a piece he did, uh, a redoing of the Christmas Carol, a Carol for another Christmas. There's so much that he did, but what do you think in the end, his legacy is what's Rod Serling's legacy? Well, I, I know, for example, Rod was asked that question in many, you know, he says, what do you want to be known for? And Rod said that a hundred years from now, if someone hears the name Rod Serling and says, oh, he was a writer, he said, that's good enough for me. Well, obviously, look where we're at. I wish he had lived to see the notoriety that he has uh, on the worldwide level. It's, it's just amazing. So the legacy is his whole body of work, uh, the brilliant mind that he had. Um, everything speaks to everybody today as it did then. No matter what he wrote, it, it's applicable to today. And, uh, you know, at least a lot of the Twilight Zones and all the major body of work before that, not so much the Ninth Day Army. So, you know, I, we're thrilled. I mean, my job as the archivist is to find all of this rare material that's out there, which I've been doing since the 70s. Uh, we now have the permanent exhibit at the Bundy Museum. It's free. Everything we do concerning Rod Serling is free. All of our programs, the exhibits, uh, and it'll always stay that way. We do not sell anything Rod Serling. We're working on licensing fees so that we can sell uh, scripts or, you know, whatever we choose to do. But, uh, you know, his, his legacy will be there another hundred years from now. As long as there's television and a way of watching these old programs, someone in the future is going to watch this and say, this still applies to me today or to our world today. And uh, I, I don't think it'll ever, uh, ever fade. And... If people want to visit your museum, you know, you talked about the different things. You have scripts, film prints, uh, things like the Nimoy helmet from the one, uh, one episode of The Twilight Zone. That's the kind of thing they can expect. How can they find out more about the museum on the net, and how can they come visit? Yes, if they go to our website, it's simply rodsterlingarchive.org. Uh, we put the website up December uh, two years ago. And we updated. You'll see the Serling helmet on there. We have a lot of rare videos that no other uh, Twilight Zone or Serling site has. Um, it talks about all of our programs, past and present, that we do. Uh, you know, when we do a program called In the Zone, like we did uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that was Martin Graham's with his Twilight Zone book and Nick with his new book. And, uh, you know, we try and give them a theme. For example, in the last year, I did time travel themes with Rod Serling. Over 25% of everything he wrote 
in his lifetime, time, time travel. Uh, I did the Christmas theme, uh, the Jewish themes. So I try and do a thematic. Uh, I did the war themes uh, in the zone. So we try and <coughs> excuse me, present. Uh, you know, we want to educate and entertain last of all. We want to educate and inspire uh, creativity in the young people today, uh, whether it be painting or writing or uh, pottery or whatever. We want to instill Rod's sense of uh, being able to create something. And uh, so, like I said, everything's free. Also, the BundyMuseum.org website has a virtual tour of the whole museum, but the Serling's not in there yet because that was done a few years ago. So, you know, we have many major things. Uh, the museum has one of the largest African art exhibits in the state. A uh, barbershop from 1940 that was recreated there. Um, the main thing is the Bundy brothers, who know, most people don't know, were the inventors of the IBM Corporation. Harlow and Wilbur Bundy in the 1880s uh, invented the time recorder clock. And so that was so important because they later sold the rights to Thomas Watson, who became IBM. So... Our main exhibit there is the museum. This is their actual home, the three buildings. Uh, in their carriage house is uh, the Bundy Time Recorder Clock exhibit. And it's, it's an amazing piece. And uh, everything is free unless you want a personal guided tour. And then there's a $7 suggestion zone. And uh, so you have to check out our website. There's links to our Facebook page for the Serling Archive. Through our website, there's links to an email that comes straight to me. RodSerlingArchive at gmail.com. I answer every letter. We love questions. We love comments. Uh, ideas of what we can do to make things even better. Uh, or if there's a correction, you know, I want to be informed of all of these things. And uh, so, you know, we're very active and hopefully will be for many years to come. Mike Pfeiffer, archivist of the Rod Serling Archive at the Bundy Museum. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's the big Picture, if you will, a legend, and he lives on, Rod Serling. Thank you for joining this week, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.